You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us through your word this morning, that our time spent in your word may serve to sanctify us and the truth to give us an appreciation for Jesus Christ and what he has done and the marvelous drama that is unfolding before us as we see uh, what Christ has endured on behalf of his people. We pray that we would love him and serve him and adore him for all that he has done on our behalf. We pray that you would instruct us now in your word that we might be your servants whose hearts are bent and inclined to you and to serve you and to love you. And may you open our eyes to your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 18, we're going to read together the first 11 verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the father has given me. Shall I not drink it? We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning because we're going to cover all 11 of those verses that we just read. And I know that's going to come as a shock to many of you who are talking to your neighbor even now and whispering and nudging and wondering, did Jim get diagnosed with a terminal illness and be given two months to live and he wants to finish John before he dies? Let me assure you that that is not the case. It just so happens that we are in a portion of John's gospel now that is not rich in theological instruction, as we have seen earlier, where Jesus is giving theological instruction or where John gives to us a sign or uh, a miracle that he interprets for us. That's not to say that this section is not loaded with theology. It is, but it is to say that it is different than what we have encountered up until now, especially the last several months with the sermon, uh, so the farewell discourse from that upper room in, in chapters 14 through 16, and then the prayer in chapter 17. That necessitated that we go a bit more slowly, but, but now beginning in chapter 18, there's a lot of narrative and the story moves rather quickly. And so we're going to we're going to sort of keep the pace that the text would demand. And uh, I sat down this last week and I mapped out the number of sermons that we have until Easter. And it looks as if if we keep up a, a very doable pace, that we will be at the resurrection accounts in 20 verse one by the time we get to Resurrection Sunday. So I promise you that we're not going to sacrifice any quality. Uh, <laughs> not that there's any of that, but we're going to sacrifice any, let's say, depth. Uh, we're not going to breeze over any details just in an attempt to meet some manufactured, self-imposed schedule. But it does look as if this, this timing is going to work out and we'll be at the resurrection narrative by Resurrection Sunday. And then for a brief moment, we can all sit around and say, oh, it looks like Jim actually plans what he says up there. 
So we're going to take today verses 1 through 11. And there are three sections to this uh, scene that unfolds here. Each of these three sections revolves around a different man. So there are three men in verses 1 to 11. You may have noticed that. We have Judas, who features prominently in these verses. Jesus, obviously, who features prominently in these verses. And then Peter. Judas, Jesus, and Peter. So those are the three men that we're going to look at. And that's sort of the division or the outline of our, of our time this morning. Let's look, first of all, at Judas and his treachery in verses 1 through 3. So it's Judas in verses 1 through 3, Jesus in verses 4 through 9, and Peter in verses 10 and 11. So Judas and his treachery first in verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now, that these words refers to, I think, the upper room discourse and the prayer Back in chapter 17, some have suggested that the, these words refers to uh, Jesus leaving or the, Jesus departing here and going forth refers to uh, um, him leaving the upper room where they had dinner. But we saw at the end of chapter 14 that Jesus said to the disciples in the middle of the discourse, get up, let us go from here. And we noted that chapter 13 and 14 probably took place in that upper room with the disciples over and around that last Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. At the end of chapter 14, they got up and probably began to make their way through the city of Jerusalem. And so the discourse in 15 and the vine and the branches part of the discourse and chapter 16 and the references and the teaching of the Holy Spirit probably all took place as Jesus was making his way through the city and past the temple. At some point in all of that, in chapter 17, he, he bowed his head and prayed for the disciples. And when he had got through all of that, he went forth, meaning not that he exited the room, but that he exited the city of Jerusalem. That would be my take on it. Uh, he went forth and left the city of Jerusalem. He went down past the Kidron Valley and into the garden. And although John doesn't note that it was the Garden of Gethsemane, it most certainly was the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mentioned that, that it was the Garden of Gethsemane. I want to give you some idea of how far away that was and, and how things were located, just so you can have this picture in your mind. I want you to imagine that you are looking north up the Kidron Valley. And the Kidron Valley, uh, the ravine of the Kidron, ran down the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. And it was a dry ravine or a dry brook, except in winter months or after heavy rains. But it was a, the, it was right down to the east of the city of Jerusalem. There was a valley there. So you're looking north. You've got the city of Jerusalem, which sets up on top of one kind of raised plateau. And then you have the Kidron Valley. And the ravine ran right down the east side of that. And uh, next to, right across from the Garden of Gethsemane was the eastern wall of the temple, which sat up on the hill. And there was no city outside of that. The eastern wall was right up on top of it, and then there was a, a sharp decline. And then, and you can see this, by the way, I've been there in Google Maps. Uh, me and Brian Williams, we visited the city of Jerusalem together. You can see it yourself today. But it, it a sharp decline from this temple wall all the way down into the Kidron Valley. And then right, on the, right at the bottom of that, as it comes up the other side, it begins the ascent to the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives and the mountain on which Jerusalem and the temple sat were right across from each other. And as the bird or the crow would fly probably not even a half a mile from the top of the Mount of Olives to the top of the Temple Mount. Well, if you cross the, the Kidron Valley, and Jesus probably would have exited toward the south end of the city of Jerusalem, so he would have made his way up the Kidron Valley a little bit, and probably a half a mile of, of total walking that night from the time he left the city, up the Kidron Valley, across the ravine, and then just as you start the ascent of up the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane there on the side of the Mount of Olives. Um, so it's just it's just beginning up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. And today there is a, um, a church there called the Church of All Nations. And uh, this is what our ancient Christian uh, forefathers did. 
is they would find a place that they thought was holy and they would say, let's build a church here. So in order for people to come and see this site, so there's a rock inside the church of all nations. And yet if you want to come in and see the rock where Jesus prayed in the Mount of Olives, today we really don't even know that that is necessarily the location. We know that it was on the side of the Mount of Olives. Now, whether it was this rock or the next rock over where Jesus prayed, nobody knows those things for sure. But we do know a little bit of what the, that geography would look like. So if you were standing inside the Garden of Gethsemane and you were facing and looking to the west, you would be looking up at the wall of the temple. And you could see the, you could see it even lit up inside of that, up, up the incline. It's about 100 feet of incline to the base of the wall. And then the wall of the temple is more than that. If you were standing up on the Mount of Olives, you'd be able to look right across the, the short valley, right at the Temple Mount on the other side. So that's the Garden of Gethsemane, and that was kind of its location. It wouldn't have taken Jesus very long to get there. Um, it is it is wondered or contested by suggested by some, I should say, suggested by some that this Garden of Gethsemane was a private garden, privately owned. Nobody really knows whether it was a public garden or a private garden. Most commentators think it was probably a private garden. The word Gethsemane means oil press, and so this was probably a garden with an olive oil press in it and with olive trees in it. And it was probably private because that, that oil press and those trees were used to make oil for this family. And probably it belonged to a wealthy family who owned the garden and owned the press and owned the trees and used it as part of their private industry. If it was a public garden, then everybody would have been able to access it. But it seems as if this was one of Jesus' favorite places to go with his disciples since verse 2 says, uh, this, the, Jesus, Judas knew the place for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So it seems as if the owner of this garden allowed Jesus and his disciples to meet there and to use the garden at their leisure whenever Jesus was in Jerusalem. The uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, if it was privately owned, uh, some people suggested that, that the young man mentioned in Mark chapter 14, do you remember the young man who was in the garden and the, the soldiers tried to arrest him and he was dressed in only a linen cloth and the soldiers tried to seize him and he fled leaving the linen cloth and it, Mark says that he fled away naked? Now what I'm going to give to you right now is a whole bunch of conjecture. But some have suggested that that was Mark, the author of Mark's gospel, and that was his way of sort of leaving his mark on his mark on the gospel on his own writing. And uh, if if that is the case, then it, it, if the, if the garden was a private garden, then you can imagine Jesus and his disciples going there as part of his normal routine with his disciples, um, or Jesus going there with his disciples as part of the normal routine. And then when this crowd shows up to arrest him, this was created quite a quite a commotion. And it's very possible that the, the young man who flees naked would have heard the commotion outside of his house. And if it wasn't the owner, maybe it was a member of the family who owned the vineyard. And he wrapped himself in a linen sheet and went out to see what was going on, followed the events there in the garden as this all unfolded. And then when they tried to arrest him, he fled away naked. So there's a lot of things that indicate this was probably a private, a private garden and a private setting and that Jesus would frequent there uh, with his disciples. It's also been suggested because... Um, Luke mentions in Luke chapter 21, verse 37. Now, during the day, Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet, meaning that Jesus and his disciples spent the night out of doors, outside of the city of Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives, every night during that Passion Week. And weather permitting, this is what all the pilgrims in Jerusalem would do who showed up for the Passover. They would camp out outside in tents or temporary shelters. So it's very possible that Luke could be referring here that this was where Jesus stayed with his disciples out in this garden up on the side of the Mount of Olives and that he did this every night. And so that's where Jesus where Jesus stayed. Now, it is not insignificant that the events of this evening and the events of the next day would begin in a garden. In fact, a garden is going to feature gardens 
and a garden is going to feature prominently in the events uh, all the way through the next two and three and four chapters in John. Because this night of passion, the night in which Jesus was betrayed and where he was arrested was in a garden. He went to a garden with his disciples. Uh, John 19, verse 41, says that Jesus, for the place where he was crucified, there was a garden there. So he was crucified in or near a garden. He was laid in a tomb in or near in a garden, and he rose from the dead in a garden. Now, all of that is significant. This night begins in a garden, and he would be laid to rest the next day in a garden. You remember where it was that man fell into sin and was ruined? Where the first Adam disobeyed God and brought his entire race into ruin? Where did that take place? That was in a garden. And now the Son of Man, the second Adam, would step into a garden where he would obey the Father and he would rescue humanity and he would die in a garden and he would be buried in a garden and he would rise again in a garden. Man fell into sin in the garden and the Son of Man would redeem and rescue men all surrounding a garden. So I'm not saying there's anything, you know, I'm not going to write a book about this, but it's just an interesting parallel. There's also another his, interesting historical parallel having to do with the brook, brook Kidron. Interesting, if you go back into the Old Testament, there's a mention of the book Brook Kidron, of the Kidron Valley. Do you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 20, 15, that's what I said, 2 Samuel chapter 15, where Absalom leads the revolt against his father David and drives David and his, his uh, friends out of the city of Jerusalem? And it says in Acts, uh, because Absalom sat in the gate and won over the hearts of the people as they came into the city. And he would say to them, if I were king, I would give you justice. And so he, he won the hearts of the people over to him. And then he revolted against David and ended up da- driving David out of the city of Jerusalem. Second Samuel fifteen twenty three says, while all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. That is, all the people who followed with David left the city of Jerusalem and passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. So David, as he was fleeing Jerusalem, left and he exited and went over the brook Kidron. Now, here's the interesting historical parallel. Second Samuel 15 notes that while David was leaving the city and crossing the brook Kidron with all the people, Absalom sent for Ahithophel, who was David's trusted advisor and his trusted friend. And Ahithophel joined the rebellion and betrayed David and joined Absalom's son. Or sorry, David's son Absalom in his rebellion. And this was a very painful event in the life of David. And he wrote about it in Psalm 41, verse 9, where David says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Does that sound familiar? Remember back in chapter 13, Jesus quoted Psalm 41, verse 9, regarding what? Judas's betrayal of him. So while David was crossing the brook Kidron to leave the city, he was betrayed by his friend. While Jesus was crossing the brook Kidron, he was being betrayed by Judas. And interestingly, Ahithophel's betrayal of Jesus becomes a picture and a prophecy and a portrait of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Just an interesting historical parallel there about the, the river Kidron. All right, beginning in verse 2. We're going to move on or we're never going to get through this like I promised you we would. Verse 2, now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Next week, I'm going to give you a, a biographical sermon just on Judas himself. We're going to look at who Judas was, where he came from, what type of man he was, everything Scripture says about him. This, is, this passage, verses 1 through 11, is the last reference to Judas anywhere in John's Gospel. John doesn't give us any of the details surrounding what happened to Judas after he betrayed Jesus. So next week, we're going to cover everything that happened to Judas from the beginning of his life, everything that we know about him from beginning to end, and the lessons that we can learn. But tonight, I just want you to notice what John says about him. John portrays him as the betrayer. Look at verse 2 again. Judas, who was betraying, present tense, In fact, John mentions this twice. Look down at verse 5. 
They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, standing with them. Now, twice in this passage, John mentions that Judas was in the act of betraying Jesus. Did John even have to mention to us that Judas was betraying Jesus? Did John even have to add that detail? He didn't because back in chapter 13, verse 2, John said of Judas that Satan had put it into his heart to betray Jesus. And in 13, verse 27, it says that when Jesus handed Judas the stopped bread, that Satan entered into him. And we already know from John's gospel that at that moment, Judas got up and he left the crowd. And Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. And he dismissed him from the group. We already know all of that. We know because we've read chapter 12 and 13 who Judas was and what he went out to do. But now John mentions it twice. He was betraying him. And Judas, who was betraying him, why does John emphasize that? To remind us of just how wicked and treacherous this act was. This is the greatest betrayal that has ever been committed by anybody against anybody else in the history of humanity, bar none. It is the worst betrayal of all. And when all of the gospel writers, when they mention Judas, you know what stands out for them? His treachery. This guy was a traitor like no other traitor. And that is what he is, that is what he is known for. So he was betraying him. Verse 2 says that uh, he knew the place for Jesus had often met with his disciples there. You ever wonder what it was? that Judas gave to the Roman officials and to the Jewish chief priest for the 30 pieces of silver? You ever wonder what it was that he sold them? Verse 2 is the answer. He sold them information. That's what Judas sold them, information. In, in a city full of people and pilgrims from all over the land who had come there for that Passover week, the Jewish officials needed information, and the information that they needed was where Jesus would be when he would be there, and when he would be alone. Because they needed, they wanted to arrest Jesus. But most of the people in the city of Jerusalem would not have been able to pick Jesus of Nazareth out of a lineup. Most of those pilgrims wouldn't have been able to do that. Further, they wouldn't have known where Jesus was staying or when he would be alone. The Jewish chief priests and the authorities wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't arrest him when he was surrounded by a crowd. Because they feared a riot. They feared that the people would turn on them. So they needed to know when Jesus would be alone and where he would be alone with the least number of people possible and when they could arrest him under the quiet of darkness. And that is the information that Judas went to them and sold to them for 30 pieces of silver. He told them where Judas, Jesus would be and when Jesus would be there and the most opportune time. And then beyond, beyond that, Judas then took the entire group to Jesus in order to have him arrested. Verse 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, I want you to notice who is leading this charge of people coming out to Jesus. Judas, then, he received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And Judas came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Who's the leader of this? Judas is. If you've ever pictured that, that evening going something like this, where Judas, Judas goes in and strikes a deal with the Roman authorities, and then he, as, as they kind of march out of the building, he goes over into a dark counter, uh, corner and, and polishes his gold coins and counts them out one at a time over and over again because he's so thrilled with that. If that's your picture of it, you've got it all wrong. Judas took that money and put it in his pocket. And then guess what? He got together the Roman cohort. He got together the temple guard. He gathered together the chief priests and the Pharisees. And Luke, actually, in Luke 22, I think it's verse 47, says Judas was leading them. He was right out at the front of the pack. And everybody was following him right to the location where he knew where Jesus would be and he knew when he would be there. Judas is the one who is not only betraying the location, but he is leading the entire group out there. And John says that he received the cohort. He received the temple guard. He led the whole thing. It is Judas is behind it. It's not just a here's the information. I'll go my way and you go your way. 
this traitor was involved in the, in the details of putting together this entire arrest party and then bringing everybody out to the garden right where he knew Jesus would, would be. So he's leading this. Now, John says that he received a Roman cohort. What is a cohort? A cohort was a term used for a group of Roman soldiers, listen, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of six to a thousand men. Or 600, 600 to a thousand men. Now, I doesn't, I haven't read anybody who thinks that Judas actually brought a thousand Roman soldiers out there to the garden. More likely, this is John's way of describing that Judas brought with him a contingent or a group or a detachment from the cohort. Um, there are there were smaller groups, like a cohort was made up of a number of what they called maniples, which was 200 soldiers each. So most men have suggested that what Judas brought out there was probably a maniple of, or two of, of Roman soldiers that made up part of the cohort. But John here uses the phrase he received the cohort, but not meaning the whole cohort. In other words, it's a figure of speech, much as if I were to say to you, the police pulled me over for speeding. When I say that, you don't assume that what I mean is that every police officer in the city of Sandpoint pulled me over for speeding, right? You understand what I mean, that some one police officer, or maybe two if I'm going to be on the front page of the Daily Bee tomorrow, one police officer or two cars pulled me over, but they acted on behalf of the entire police department. Or we say the fire department put out the fire. It doesn't mean that every single individual in the fire department was there doing that, but that a contingent, a group from the fire department came to do that. It's the same thing here with the word cohort. So probably not 600 to 1,000. That would have literally emptied out the city of Jerusalem with all the Roman soldiers who were there, the entire cohort that was stationed at Fort Antonio. It would have emptied out the entire city. So probably not the whole cohort, but probably a good number of men. How many? Mark says it was a crowd. Matthew says it was a great or a large crowd. I think that we would be probably conservative if we said that there was between 200 and 400 or 500 people that came out in this group. We know that not only was the cohort involved, but look what verse 3 says. There were officers and chief priests and Pharisees. The officers would refer to the temple guard. And this was under the control of the chief priests and the Sadducees who ran the temple compound. So you have Gentile soldiers, Romans. You had uh, Jewish soldiers, the temple guard. How many Jewish soldiers would have come out? Enough to require the presence of a commander, which verse 12 mentions the presence of the commander who came out with them. Plus you have the Pharisees and you have the chief priests who are all part of this group. That's a large number of people, isn't it? Probably in excess, I would think easily in excess of 200 people, probably close to four or 500 people by the time this whole uh, everybody is accounted for. Now, if you think to yourself, now certainly they would not take 500 people out to arrest one man. Let me give you some things to consider. If the Romans were known for anything, it was their overwhelming, intimidating display of force. Back in chapter in Acts chapter 23, when there was a when Paul was arrested, he was being held in the city of Jerusalem. You remember there were 40 men who vowed together that they would kill Paul and they would not eat or drink until Paul was dead. Remember Paul's nephew found out about it and he went and he told the Roman uh, authority there. And what did he do? Under the cover of night, he ushered Paul out of Jerusalem off to Caesarea, and he sent with Paul 470 soldiers, 470 soldiers to move one man. If Rome was known for anything, it was their overwhelming displays of force and power. They wanted to intimidate people. Further, remember that less than a week prior to this, the entire city had been singing songs of coronation to Jesus of Nazareth as he was marched into the city on the back of a colt, the foal of a donkey. Remember that? And they had proclaimed him king. The Roman authorities, the officials, the Jewish high priests, all of them would have expected that the entire city was on his side. 
If they didn't expect that, they would have never tried to arrest him under the cover of darkness. Instead, they would have done it in broad daylight. But they feared a riot because they felt that all of the people were on his side and they had, he had their sympathies. And you can well imagine that Judas, having been the one who organized all of this and went there with that information, that he would tell the chief priest, look, I know that one of them, that right-wing nut Peter, he's armed. We know he's armed, right? Because later on he takes out a sword and cuts off a guy's ear. So we know that Peter is armed. And Judas further probably could have told them, you need to understand, Jesus knows what's up. He knows the gig is up. He dismissed me from the room. And he looked into my eyes. And he said, what you do, do quickly. He knows I'm coming. He knows we're coming. The disciples know that we're coming. We might even expect Jesus to gather together a few people with him to, to support him there. There's at least 11 other men. We know that some of them are armed. What do you think Rome's going to do? Show up with five or six soldiers? They're not going to do that. They are going to show up with an overwhelming display of force to arrest Jesus. And that's what they did. So that's Judas and his treachery. Now look at Jesus, Jesus and his sovereignty, beginning in verse 4. Oh, one other note. At the end of verse 3, you'll notice that it mentions, John mentions that Judas came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It would have been a full moon and they would have been able to see to get to the Garden of Gethsemane just fine without any artificial light. But the fact that they bring with them torches and lanterns is an indication that they are probably expecting Jesus and his disciples to flee and to run and that they may be on a manhunt all over the side of Mount, the Mount of Olives before night is over. And so they're bringing with them artificial light and the weapons because they're expecting that they're going to have to, with this massive group of people, hunt Jesus down. Verse 4, Jesus and his sovereignty. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? Now, there is something that happens between verse 3 and verse 4. There's a gap that all three of the other gospel writers mention, and it is Jesus' prayer of agony. And we read it in Matthew 26, 26 through 56 at the beginning of our service. That is where Jesus prayed to the Father, if it is thy will, let this cup pass from before me. He took the disciples into the garden. He took Peter, James, and John a little bit further. He expressed to them the distress of his soul, that he was grieved and, and vexed over what he knew that he was facing the next day. And then he left them there to pray, and he went further into the garden himself to pray by himself. And he came back and he found them sleeping. Maybe if, the, it, maybe if the, the Garden of Gethsemane was the place where they were staying the night, maybe they just laid down on their cots for the evening and rather than praying, they fell asleep. And Jesus went back and he uh, prayed again and came back and they were sleeping again. He went back a third time and prayed. And then when he came out of that prayer, that is when Judas showed up. Now, all of that happens between verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 4, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? Now, verse 4 is key because it is another demonstration in John's gospel of the omniscience of Jesus, that he knew all things. And that's what John says. He knew all that was coming upon him. He knew who was coming out. He knew how many people were coming out. He knew every weapon that they were holding. He knew why they were there. He knew who they were seeking. He knew what was going to happen after he was arrested. He knew every trial, every mockery, every beating, every question he would be asked over the course of that night. He knew every event that would unfold over the next 24 hours. He knew it all. He knew of the cross. He knew the pain that he faced. He knew of the, the scourging and the beating and the nails and the hammering and the mocking and the thirst and the bones feeling like they're out of, out of place. All of that he knew. He knew all of that full well. And that is John's way of reminding us that as Jesus walked out to face Judas, he was well aware of everything that he faced. He didn't stumble out of the garden thinking, I wonder who these guys are here to arrest. I wonder what they're here for. Who are they looking for? Not that at all. He stepped out himself to meet Judas, knowing full well everything that he was about to face. This is his omniscience. And again, we see that Jesus in all of this is a willing sacrifice, a willing victim. He is not going to the cross because he cannot avoid it. He is completely willing in all of this. And he offers himself up. And, and the very fact that he went out to them 
is, is an expression of that. That he was coming out to meet them. He didn't cower behind his disciples. He didn't send one of the disciples out to meet the crowd himself and try and try and find out what they were about. He himself stepped out between his disciples and the crowd and asked them, whom do you seek? And he offered himself up at this time. This is quite different than in John chapter 6. I would just remind you, when the crowd came to him and wanted to take him by force and give him a kingdom, what did he do? He went away and hid himself. But when the crowd came by force to take him and give him a cross, what did he do? He offered himself. That's two totally different reactions to very similar circumstances. He didn't come in John chapter 6 to reign and rule as a king and set up and establish a kingdom like the Jews wanted. That wasn't why he came. He came to offer himself. And now the time has come, he steps out to offer himself between he and the disciples. I tried to fit the, the, the incident of Judas's kiss of betrayal into this narrative somewhere. It seems to me that it fits in right here before verse 4 because as we read in Matthew and we read again in Mark, uh, as soon as Judas arrives there and Jesus steps out, it says immediately Judas walked up to him and gave him a kiss. Now, the kiss was a, a sign of friendship and homage and, 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 and love and affection in that culture. Uh, nothing improper or immoral about it in that context at all. But it was this sign by which Judas gave to the soldiers who would not have been able to pick Jesus of Nazareth out of a lineup, especially in a dark night like that. It was the sign that Judas gave to them of whom it was that they were to arrest. Now, gathering from the other Gospels, there's quite a bit of dialogue that is going on around this. But as soon as Jesus stepped out and Judas stepped up, remember Judas is at the front because he is leading them. He walked up to Jesus and betrayed Jesus with a kiss, kissed him on the cheek. And Jesus said to him, Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then it seems as if turning to the crowd, Jesus says in verse 4, whom do you see? Now, that's kind of odd, isn't it? Given at the beginning of verse 4, we read that Jesus knew all things. So obviously he's not asking this question because he's curious. He's not asking this question for himself. What he is getting at is he is getting the crowd, this group of people, to admit who they are there to arrest. Now, whom do you seek? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. Now, your translation probably says, I am he, right? Probably. Is it in italics? And it should be in italics because it's not in the original Greek. That's a pronoun that is added in our English translations to make the text kind of flow and, and, and sound uh, more readable to us. But it detracts somewhat from the force of the scene and from the statement because if you understand what the I am is, then you, you know that what Jesus is doing is he is hearkening back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where Moses says, If the children of Israel ask me who has sent them, what do I say? And God gives himself a name or reveals that his name is the I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. This is the same phrase, ego I me in the Greek, that Jesus uses in John chapter 8 when he says to the unbelieving Pharisees, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Not that I am he, but unless you believe that ego I me, that I am the I am, unless you believe that, that I am God in human flesh, you will die in your sins. He says it again in John 8, and later on at the end of John 8, verse 58, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, three times in that chapter, took the name of God to himself to reveal who he was to these unbelieving Pharisees. And so when these soldiers come out and say, whom do you seek? And he says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus, <coughs> excuse me. Jesus said to them, I am. He doesn't say, I am he. I am. He's using the divine name of himself. In fact, all three times that, he, that this is mentioned in this verse, in this passage, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8, all three of those times that John records that sentence, he eliminates, he doesn't use the, the pronoun he. Jesus just says, I am. There's something that happened in all of this when he said, I am. But look at verse 5 first. Judas, who was betraying him, was standing with them. 
And that's John's little way of saying that after Judas had stepped up to Jesus and kissed him to indicate the one that they were to arrest, Judas apparently stepped back with the crowd. And John is reminding us of two things. Number one, that Judas was with them. The lines were drawn and Judas was firmly ensconced on their side. Judas was still at this point hardened in his sin and hardened in his treachery. He was with them. But this reminds us of something else, that what is about to unfold in verse 6 Judas experienced this, and he witnessed this, and this happened to him. What happened in verse 6? So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. What is that? What's going on there? That was a display of sovereign power from Jesus Christ that pushed this entire crowd backwards and to the ground. John John doesn't describe to us exactly how this happened, but we are to picture in our minds that when he said, I am, when he took the divine name to himself, this crowd fell backwards and they fell down. They were completely incapacitated by that display of power. It overwhelmed them. And Judas faced that. Judas experienced that himself. Because remember, he was standing with them. So he fell down and fell backwards. This is nothing less than a divine display of sovereign power where his enemies were completely overcome, pushed back, pressed to the ground, disarmed, and for however long, completely incapacitated. They were overwhelmed with this power. Now, some people have a hard time believing that this is actually what happened. But listen, if I don't find it difficult to believe at all that the one who spoke and healed the sick by the power of his word, who in speaking could raise the dead just by saying, Lazarus, come forth, who could speak and calm the sea and the storm, who could just speak and cast out demons. It doesn't strike me as difficult to believe at all that this same one could, by the power of his spoken word, by just saying, I am, that he could push down this paltry little group of toy soldiers. That doesn't seem like an unbelievable to me at all. But you'd be you'd be amazed at the lengths that people go to try and explain this. For instance, uh, Alfred, which is an ancient common, uh, commentator and a liberal, a skeptic who denies uh, uh, some of the supernatural elements of Scripture, he suggested that what really happened here was that when Jesus said, I am, and he revealed that this one who came out to meet the soldiers, that he was the one that they were looking for, that they were so taken aback that they kind of, whoa, stepped back like that, ended up stepping on the foot of the guy behind him and pushed him over, tripped over him, and the whole crowd, like a bunch of dominoes, just fell backwards. If you believe that, you got more faith than I do. You might as well try and convince me that all of these soldiers decided at that time to play ring around the rosy pockets full of posy, we all fall down, just when he's happened to say that. That's just ludicrous. This is nothing less than a display of divine power, completely incapacitating his enemies. And for however long they were laying on the ground. Now, here's what I think is, is being demonstrated to us by this miraculous display of power. These disciples were seeing once again that if he is taken, it's not going to be because he has been seized. It is because he has surrendered. If he goes, it is entirely willing. He's going on his own accord. He is the great shepherd. He said, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He's going out as a willing sacrifice. They're not, they're not, they may think that they are binding him and arresting him, but these men have no power over him whatsoever unless he wills it. They cannot do anything unless he allows it. Jesus Christ himself is the one who is sovereignly in control of every aspect of everything that is happening that evening. We can never lose sight of that. They cannot do anything. They couldn't even get up off the ground unless he willed it. And after a period of time, they were able to get up off the ground. And they gathered themselves and collected their armor and their, and their swords. And they asked him again. He asked them again, whom do you seek? Verse 7. And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. 
And John says in verse 9, this was to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. J.C. Ryle, interestingly enough, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, suggests that when Jesus said to the soldiers, um, ask them twice, whom do you seek, that he, is, he was eliciting from them an admission that they had no authority and no orders to arrest any of the disciples. He was getting them to state publicly, we're here for Jesus of Nazarene. Who? Jesus of Na- the Nazarene. And he's wanting them to affirm publicly, this is who we're here for. So that he could say to them, then you leave these alone. I'm here, I'm giving myself to you, but you leave these men alone. Then J.C. Rao goes on to say that the very utterance of those words, leave these men, let these men go, was itself accompanied by a divine influence that commanded and demanded their obedience. In other words, Jesus, in, in saying this, was securing the release of the disciples because these soldiers, by the divine influence of God's will, would be forced to obey that and that they would let him go, uh, let them go, let the disciples go. And this, John says, was to fulfill the word that he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost none of them. Now, verse uh, 8, sorry, verse 9, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. That is a quotation from chapter 17, verse 12. You remember the context of chapter 17, verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I gathered them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now, back in chapter 17, verse 12, the, the not losing any of them, but gathering them all in and bringing them all to eternal glory, we saw that that refers to eternal salvation. It refers to God's keeping power spiritually. But this verse, when John quotes it in verse 9, it seems to imply that what is being described there is some sort of physical keeping, that Jesus was keeping the disciples from being arrested and tortured and tried and maybe even killed. And Jesus is certainly doing that. But some have suggested that's really not a fulfillment of chapter 17, verse 12, since in chapter 17, verse 12, he's not describing being protected physically, but being protected spiritually. And I would suggest to you these two things do not, they're not different at all. These two things go together. These men, if they had been arrested that night, their faith was not strong enough to endure the, the trials of that evening. Those men, their faith, they could not endure what Jesus was about to endure. And I think we can safely infer from from the way John uses this, that if those men had been arrested and faced trial and been tortured or even faced death that night, that all of them would have been lost. They would have lost their faith. It would have been too much for them. They would have been abandoned. But this is how our sovereign God protects us. He keeps us from the trials that would destroy our faith. We do believe that God keeps us and preserves us in our faith, and he keeps us from apostatizing, and he keeps us from losing our salvation, and he keeps us from abandoning him by keeping us from those things that would ruin and destroy our faith. Sometimes God allows in the lives of false professors trials to come in so as to expose their unbelief, but in the lives of his children, he never allows anything that would actually crush or squash our faith and cause us to perish. This is the way in which he sovereignly preserves his people. And so these two things go together. In keeping them from these physical trials, he was keeping them from spiritual apostasy because he knew their faith and he knew that they could not endure the trials of that evening. So that is the sovereignty of Jesus, the treachery of Judas, the sovereignty of Jesus. Now look at verses 10 and 11 at Peter and his, are you ready for this? Impetuosity. That is the word. I looked that up. You could use audacity or temerity, but, uh, but impetuous is what describes Peter in his act- activities. And I wouldn't just make up words. You know me better than that. I've already reached my quota for the year. It's not even December. So that is a word. Peter and his impetuosity. Look at verse 10. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Now, Matthew, if you remember, Matthew, I think it was Matthew that we read at the beginning. Where I mean, I've been reading all three Gospels, so I get these a bit confused. I think it's Matthew who says, um, one of the disciples said, Jesus, do, is it now that we strike with the sword and ask that question? So that happens at some point in all of this. Um, but Peter grabbed his sword and swung for Malchus and missed him and cut off his right ear. 
Now, if you miss somebody and you cut off their right ear, what are you swinging for? His head, right? Peter is not trying to Tanya Harding Malchus and take him across the knees. Peter was going for Malchus's head. And however Malchus dodged that, probably, and I envision it, I don't know if this is what happened or not, but I envision it that it would probably a, a vertical blow like this, coming down like this, and in dodging that, it would have come down, hit the side of his head, and probably bounced off of his armor, his breastplate or shoulder, whatever Malchus had on at the time. Uh, took off his right ear. And Peter used a sword. It was a shorter sword for close hand-to-hand combat. Not the bigger sword that we would uh, think of in terms of like a battle, but it was the word for a shorter sword. And Peter drew that and took a swing at Malchus's head. Now, all four gospel writers mention this, this incident. John gives us two details that no other gospel writer mentions. Number one, it is John that tells us that it was Peter who did this. Matthew says it was a companion of Jesus. Mark says somebody standing nearby. Uh, John tells us Peter was the man. This is the, and it turns out this is exactly something that we would expect Peter to do, knowing Peter's character from Scripture like we do. But Peter was the man. Second, John tells us that it was the name of the man whose ear got lopped off. It was Malchus. And further, John tells us he was the slave of Caiaphas, the high priest, or the slave of the high priest, not a slave, but the. And John uses a definite article indicating that Malchus probably had some position of prominence as the slave of Caiaphas. Which would explain why it was that the slave of the high priest was out at the front of the crowd near enough to the disciples to have Peter take a lunge at him with the sword. He was probably Caiaphas's right hand man who was there to oversee the temple guard and the chief priests and the commander to make sure that all of this happened just as the chief priests and the Pharisees wanted it to happen. And Malchus is the man. Now, here's what's curious. And I'll return to this in a few weeks from now. Here's what's curious. This was Malchus was Caiaphas's slave, his right hand man, probably his, his chief guy over all of this. Later on that evening, Jesus would stand before Caiaphas. Luke says in his gospel that Jesus, when he commanded Peter to put away his sheath, he reached up and he healed Malchus's ear. Do you not think that that entered into the equation that night when Jesus stood before the high priest? Do you not think that Malchus would have said something to Caiaphas? Look, I was in the garden and he, Peter took off my ear and this man reached up and created an ear out of nothing. And here I am. Look, no scar tissue, nothing. It's all there. But there's an ear lying over in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can go check it out yourself. Do you not think that that would have entered into the equation in that whole conversation? That Malchus, as an eyewitness and a recipient of such mercy, might have said something to Caiaphas? But it didn't enter into Caiaphas' diabolical plans for that evening. So Malchus, and by the way, it is Luke that mentions that Malchus was healed. Luke was a doctor. So that's another kind of an example of how each gospel writer sees different things in the narrative, right? No other gospel writer mentions he was healed. But Luke noticed that because this is what's significant to Luke. Why? Because Luke was a doctor. So, verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And each of the gospel writers, except Mark, Mark doesn't record anything about Jesus' rebuke to Peter, but Matthew and Luke both record uh, things that Jesus said. There seems to be quite a bit of conversation here between Jesus and Peter at this juncture. Let me read to you what Luke says. Luke just says that Jesus said, stop, no more of this. And then Luke records that Jesus touched Malchus and healed his ear. Matthew writes this. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scripture be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? And John says this, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? 
And if you put all those gospel accounts together, Jesus said to Peter, stop it, put away the sword. He touched Malchus's ear and then he turned to Peter and he said, put your sword back in its sheath. You're going to live by the sword. You're going to die by the sword. This is what the Father has given me to do. This is the cup that he has given me to drink. Shall I not do this in order the scripture would not be fulfilled? All of this has to happen. He's calmly calming Peter down. He had to rebuke Peter. This, this type of impetuosity, impetuousness, would have ended up getting the disciples arrested and even killed that evening. And that's the very thing that Jesus was trying to prevent from happening. Is anything happening to the disciples? And think about, think of how stunning of a rebuke this is to Peter. When Jesus said to him, this is the cup that the Father has given me to drink, shall I not drink it? The cup is an allusion to the cup mentioned in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of the wrath of God. Sometimes God pouring out his wrath is pictured of God pouring out a cup of wrath upon people. And so when Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me to do, what he is indicating there is that Jesus knew exactly what was coming on him, that he was going to die in the place of sinners and he was going to bear the full wrath of the Father on behalf of all those who will trust in him for all of their sin. He would drink that in. He would drink that cup and he would take that wrath on our behalf. Jesus knew exactly what he was facing. That's why he describes the events of that coming day as the cup of wrath, literally, that the Father had given to him to drink. And Jesus, by that time, was no more wrestling with the, the will of the Father and praying about that. He is resigned and ready to drink the cup that the Father had given him to drink. And so the rebuke to Peter is this. Should I not do what God has asked me to do? Should I disobey him now? Having come all of this way and done all of these things, shall I now not do the very thing for which I came into the world to do it? Peter, would you really have me to not die for sinners? That's the question. Would you really have me to not bear the wrath of sinners? What a reproof and a rebuke that is. And then apparently Jesus turned to the crowds who had come to arrest him and said, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And Mark then records that they all left him and fled. The disciples probably left him at that moment. A young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. And then that would bring us to verse 12, where he is arrested and bound and, and taken away to his first trial. Here's what I want you to remember from this incident, verses 1 through 11. This whole thing sets the tone for the rest of the evening and the next, all four of these last four chapters, especially the events of the next two chapters during the trials and the crucifixion and the care of his body and all that takes us to the end of verse 19. Here's what you need to remember. This, this, in these two chapters, Jesus Christ is in sovereign control of everything that is happening. When those, when those disciples, when those soldiers bowled over backward, any one of those disciples could have taken off and run. Jesus could have run. He could have gotten out of the garden that night. He could have fled and left. He had the power to do that, but he didn't. And everything that we've watched unfold in these first 11 verses is a reminder that he's in sovereign control over all of it. He's not going unwillingly. These are not the words and the actions of a man who is trying to avoid the cross. These are not the words and the actions of a man who was, who was avoiding the pain and the suffering. These are the words and the actions of a man who set his face toward the cross and he knew exactly what was ahead of him and he did it intentionally and he gave himself up willingly to die on behalf of sinners like you and me. All of it a willing sacrifice. None of it against his will. None of it outside of his control. And that's the tone for the, the whole scene that unfolds in the two chapters which are to follow. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that You have shown us this in Your Word, that Christ is in control of all of these events. And we thank You that, that He went so willingly to the cross on our behalf. He had not, did not have to be coerced. He did not have to be forced. He was not an unwilling victim, but a willing, vicarious sacrifice for us. We thank You for that reminder. We thank You that, like in His life, there is nothing that is outside of Your control 
for your grace and your sovereignty, which is intent upon working for our good and for your own glory. Thank you that you are trustworthy. We thank you for Christ and what he has done. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.